There was a time and place that this university was feared. My goal as the head football coach at the University of Tennessee is to get us back to that point. All right? Let me just quote the late, great Colonel Sanders. He said, I'm too drunk to taste this chicken. What is that? That's what she said. One step in the end zone. It's tipped up. It's caught. It is caught. Jawan Jennings. Jawan Jennings. Good morning. Afternoon. Evening. Brunch time. Lunch time. Back in the United States time. Kind of wish I wasn't back yet time. Thanks to the guys for holding down the fort while I was gone time. Whatever time of day it is, it's the right time for the Go Vols 24-7 podcast. Watch Rucker alongside Grant Ramey, Ryan Callahan. Coming to you from Fort Rucker Studio on a somewhat pleasant Thursday late morning, early afternoon. Thanks to the guys here and Patrick Brown for doing such a great job. It's uh, the real talent on the site stayed when I was gone last week, so everything was fine. Talking about Ryan, right? Yeah, of course. Everyone knows that. Uh, Yeah. But seriously, thank you to everyone for the extremely warm wishes for the uh, wedding slash honeymoon. Uh, It's been about a week and a couple days so far. And you're still married. Congrats. Yeah. No annulment proceedings have started yet no threats for a divorce only a few eye rolls give it time but you know what during a vast majority of our marriage to this point we've been on a lot of rum so probably too happy to be upset with each other about anything so but i highly recommend uh st lucia if any of y'all get the chance to go it's a beautiful country beautiful people and piton beer was delicious you can really only get it on that island. They don't export it everywhere. But that stuff, that stuff is good. Named after the Piton Mountains down there. Really good stuff. So thanks, guys, for all that. And thanks to Ramey in particular, who uh, ghosted me at my own wedding. I don't know. Do not recall. No comment. <laughs> Everyone's like, hey, where's everybody? Oh, hey, Grant already left. Which is honestly getting an Irish goodbye at your own wedding might be the most Ramey thing listen, I can imagine. Listen, listen. I've been married. I know I've been to a ton of weddings. Every groom and every bride has that look on their face like, I'm seeing you, but I'm not really seeing you because everybody's wanting to see me right now. Yeah. yeah. I know that glazed over look. And the entire time I was corralling a four-year-old and an 11-month-old that were going crazy uh, with the dance music and all that stuff. So It was up uh, pretty loud. I was playing babysitter, uh, and then it got to be almost bedtime, and they turned into monsters, and we had to leave. That's fine. If you know, if if we had had a smaller wedding, I would have been offended. But we had God, what three hundred, three hundred fifty people, some ridiculous amount of people yes, there. So, it was, so there was no way to. The see number it. of hours we've been in the same rental car. There's, I mean, what's left to discuss? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so uh, you still the exact same person that you were yesterday? <laughs> the exact. So basically, same... you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, that was, was it that? Was it that many people? It was a lot. Yeah. I think it was four hundred something or whatever invited. I think. Yeah, there may have been a few who said, hey, we're there, and then they weren't there. Or they could have been like Ramey and might have been not me. said anything. I might have not really been there. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's a very good point. It's a really crazy experience. You see different people from all kind of 
different times of your life, and they're all there in the same room, and you go, why are all of you in the same room and at the, the same time? It makes no sense. And then you see those people with dates that you don't even know, and you're like, who are you? Why are <laughs> you here? Yeah, I don't want to be rude, but why are you here? Why are you here drinking my whiskey? Why are you uh, in this nice place that we paid for? I mean, don't worry. Have a good time. Enjoy the, the food, but... Hmm, really? And Ramey definitely left before the nacho bar, so that was a loss. I don't know how many weddings have a nacho bar late night, but ours did. Anyways, back to the business at hand, guys. There's a lot of things that we can talk about from the past oh, week, week and a half of uh, Tennessee athletics because we, we did have a podcast last week, but it was recorded uh, the week before when I was still in the country. So I'm back now. There are a lot of things to discuss. Usually we kind of lead up to the main course. We go through a few appetizers. I don't think that's the fitting thing to do in this particular episode, and the reason being the uh, Wednesday's uh, death of longtime voice of the Vols, John Ward. He lived 88 glorious years on this planet. Uh, A man who really, if you're listening to this podcast and you're above the age of, I don't know, 20, 25, you'll absolutely know from the beginning exactly what John Ward meant to the University of Tennessee. And and several of the younger people probably do and should know this man, too, because, you know, there are some guys that that you think of when you think of a university. And if you had to make a Mount Rushmore of University of Tennessee athletics, which, you know, we joke this is Mount Rushmore season because everybody writes these, you know, we're all looking for summer content, so everybody writes these who would be on the Mount Rushmore for Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, Kentucky – uh, John Ward probably would be one of the four faces on Tennessee's Mount Rushmore, I think. I really do believe that. If you talk to most fans, I think they would tell you the same thing. And he never played a down for the University of Tennessee. He did not play football, baseball, basketball. He just was a Knoxville High School graduate who went on to become uh, a University of Tennessee law degree guy. Probably butchered the saying of that. But he got a yeah. law degree from the University of Tennessee Decided to pursue a career in broadcasting and journalism and communications instead. Ad- and adverti- advertising. 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 Advertising executive and yeah. vice president. Very mm-hmm. successful advertising. Very, very, very successful. The man did everything. But you know what? Thank God the man did not go into law because the man is an absolute treasure for the state of Tennessee, for the city of Knoxville, for the college football community at large, for the American sports community at large. I will stand on a table and say that I do not know that anyone who has ever called college sports has had the combination of natural ability timing delivery precision crisp voice and knowledge of what was going on during a play I don't know that everyone ever was able to put the complete package together the way that that John Moore did and uh, and a truly impressive guy always very kind to me Uh, probably didn't know me from Adam I was a little young cub reporter about the time that he was leaving Tennessee, but uh, the, the, just you think of Tennessee guys, to this day still, I think you, you think John Ward in some cases, at least people of a certain age, when you think about the Vols. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's no getting around it. Um, you know, legend probably doesn't do it justice, um, yeah. what what he represented. Uh, and, and, and a lot of it, you know, was maybe just the era that he was around in. Um, he, he kind of crossed over from the time when very few uh, actually in the beginning no games were on tv into the time where you had a few games on tv and then gradually tv became more and more of a presence and the people who got used to listening to him over the years and just associated him with tennessee football and loved his calls so much 
would listen to the radio call over the TV volume in those those games that were on TV in his later years. And that's that's what I remember listening to growing up was his his later years, his final, you know, six or seven years were the years that I remember best from his career and um uh, and and basketball as well. I, I remember his basketball calls almost as much as his football calls because I, I think he was better at basketball than yeah. he was at football. And I think even Bob Kessling who was will, a passion for him. Even Bob Kessling who and some guys who we'll listen to later in this podcast talking about we, we spoke with Bob earlier today about John Ward, the current voice of the Vols, Bob Kessling. They all said, you know, Dollar to Donuts, I, I, I think he probably cared more yeah. and was more passionate about basketball and, and enjoyed being doing basketball more than football he just never would admit that but I, th- I think he admitted it sometimes I remember hearing uh hearing that uh he 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 did basketball for three years longer than he did football he started that one sooner I guess and yep. uh and, and yeah car- a lot of people forget you know he carried on throughout the basketball season even after Tennessee won the 1998 national championship he finished out that basketball season a lot of people think that is his final broadcast but he still did the rest of that basketball season um, but yeah, I, I always thought it was really impressive that he could carry a basketball broadcast on his own, that he didn't need a color guy, yeah. uh, at least in his later years. I don't know if that was different earlier in his career, but he always did those by himself and was really good at it uh, and had some trademark calls in that. But obviously football is what he's well known for uh, just because of the, the, the enormity of the sport in the South and everything. And, uh, and he's, he's one of a kind. The thing to me, I mean, I, I put him in the same discussion with guys like for, for, for their respective sports, you know, Jack Buck, you know, with the St. Louis Cardinals, Harry Carey with the Chicago Cubs, Vin Scully with the Dodgers. He was that guy for Tennessee football fans. And um, and not just because he was their guy, in, in my opinion. I, I think, I mean, obviously that's part of it. You've got Larry Munson and other guys that have been have – been, Jack Crystal, yeah. Yeah, Kay Wood. There's, yeah, there's some, some guys. That have been well-regarded, you know, legends in, in their own right at their own schools. But to Woody, me, Woody Durham, yeah. Sure. And, and what sell, to me what separated John Ward – was was not just that he was that guy for Tennessee, but the, the way he did it. it. It was that he was he was so precise, so descriptive in his calls of games. Um, the the way he used the language was remarkable, and and that and that part of that comes from being in a different era where you didn't have the TV broadcast to rely on. You had to literally paint a picture in people's minds. He did such a good job with that, and I and I love the professionalism that he always showed. The way he would. When there was a big play by the opposing team, when Tennessee would lose a game, he would give the other side its due and and kind of escalate his voice a little bit and and not not just detract from it by you know uh, and touchdown Georgia. You know it, he actually gave the play its fair due and was had had a balance to him that not a lot of Homer radio announcers, I guess you could say, have. You knew he was a vol, you knew he was wanting Tennessee to win, but he had a professionalism to him that you didn't always hear from from the Larry Munson type. So I. I, I always appreciated that about him and thought he was just a, a master at his craft and one of a kind. And obviously in, in this era, radio guys are, are overlooked a bit more, but he's he's definitely not – you're not going to see anyone else quite like John Ward. And, and he openly admitted he didn't know football. Yeah. Like he didn't know the schematics behind football, why, why stuff was going to happen at certain times. Uh, and that just that's – a, that's a really big compliment to how good he was at his job. Uh, because of how efficient he was with his words, uh, how he wa- how he mastered the language, how you know his delivery was uh, incredible every game, and it's uh, those guys you mentioned, uh, uh, Munson and Durham and and Kaywood, all those guys. I mean these these people are uh, when these people pass away, it's like this this huge community of sports fans, whether it's Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, Kentucky, Mississippi State, whatever. They, that it's like they lose a member of their family because this, these people are like members of their family. 
uh, after growing up and listening to them for so long. And uh, it, it is incredibly sad that, that he passed away, but if, if you were in Neyland Stadium last, last season when they honored him uh, in the north end zone, I can't remember what game that was, but he was the legend of the game, and uh, they played some of his calls over the PA and brought him out in the end zone, and uh, he got a really long standing ovation. Uh, quite frankly, he looked frail. Uh, mm-hmm. He looked in pretty bad shape then, but he was also very emotional because he got a really long standing ovation. And if you go back and, and find some of those clips where he's being interviewed after he retires, it's like he never really wanted to make it about himself. He didn't really understand why it was such a big deal. I guess he he didn't really want to acknowledge just how much people thought of him and, and how kind of he had become an icon. Uh, but in that moment when he's being honored in the north end zone, I mean, tears come to his eyes. That felt like I remember standing there watching it thinking this feels like this guy's saying goodbye to the fans. The fans are saying goodbye to him. So while it is incredibly sad that he's passed, that did feel like some closure that th- there's a sense of finality to that. Yeah, it's always it's always uh, a sad, sad thing when, when anyone passes away, you know, uh, especially someone who meant so much to so many people. But I, I didn't want to make the, the tone and kind of tenor of this podcast a sad one because the man lived 88 really really good years and if you can take if you told me right now you get 88 I'll say deal you know done I'll take it where do I sign uh, and, and he did was able to enjoy some nice post-retirement years you know a lot of people you know and, and and nothing against them but you know the guys like Munson who stay on basically till the end and they're not quite the same as they used to be you know it's Harry Carey's final few years you know it's just a guy who is obviously not at the top of his game anymore he's just the cognitive you know ability or whatever just the vision whatever it is it's not the same and John Ward left when he was still at the peak of his powers and could have continued on for another decade probably with no issues whatsoever wasn't 70 yet yeah I mean and it took a lot of people by surprise when he did decide to do that but I think that he left, you know, he, it's like he knew when to go. And the man's timing was always so good. Y'all never forget just the way that I've never, to this day, I've never heard an announcer consistently mention as many missed calls during a play as John Ward did. Mm-hmm. He ever, like he treated a missed traveling call like it was a bounce pass. Just in the middle of a play, like, you know, whatever, Callahan passes to Ramey, traveled, not, no whistle, you know, passes over to Rucker on the baseline, jumper, good. Like, it was just like a thing that happened in the middle. Yeah. Holding calls that he were blatant, he'd mention them, not, not on replay, because he didn't allow them, not one time did he ever allow them to use a television in the, in the radio booth. Mm-hmm. And he told them, Bob Kessling talked to me about this this morning, he said, you know, Bob, John always told us, we are radio guys. We don't need replay. We get it right the first time. And he was old school in that way, but that's just the way that, that, that he was. And, but, but he left on top. And when he was still doing everything as well as he'd ever done it. And for a man who always knew timing, I thought that was great because his delivery always under, you know, his timing was always great. Uh, he rarely, if ever, you know, other than maybe a couple times we can remember, did not get a call wrong during a, whether some guy made or missed a, a kick or a shot or, you know, anything like that, the score. Uh, he just – we have a tendency as humans to remember people as infallible, even though they, they were far from infallible. You know, we, their legacy, their legend grows as, as, as time passes. But he really was that good. He really was one of the best. And his timing extended to his entire career because he knew 
I'm not going to give people bad memories of me toward the end. I'm going to go out when I'm on top. And it takes a it takes a pair to do that. And, and he's as universally loved uh, in this town, in this state, as I mean, Peyton Manning, Pat Summit, John yep. Ward. Yes. I mean, those those are the people that could do no wrong, never did any wrong. Uh, even somebody like Philip Fulmer had some rough years towards the end of his career. Uh, I don't know if there's anybody uh, that would match those three in terms of just how universally loved, praised, everything that they get from from this community, this state. And, and he, uh, you know, his his later years, he's he's going to be well remembered, obviously, for for being involved in in calling some memorable games for Tennessee because he he was his time coincided with a really good time for Tennessee football. He was there for the the entire Heath Schuler era, the Peyton Manning era, and of course ended with the nineteen ninety eight national championship. So that's Sugar Bowl, yeah, and, and even going back into the eighties, yeah, some memorable a memorable win over Alabama in nineteen eighty two, the Sugar Bowl, the Miracle at South Bend in ninety one. So lots of memorable games that allowed uh, his career to, to kind of stand out in, in that way because you are associated with the moments you get to call as a broadcaster. But so much of what made him important to Tennessee, I think, is just that he was the connection for so many people to Tennessee football. He made the Vol Network into what it is today. He was the conduit. Yeah. yeah I mean. And so for so many people who grew up in, you know, West Tennessee, Middle Tennessee, you know, interstates had just come around when he first got into the business. You know, he... He not many people traveled across the state to go to games very often, and for and it was a pain when you did. Yeah, and for so for a lot of those people that that couldn't go very often or never got to go, he was he was the representation of Tennessee football. He was your connection to it and what got people into it in a lot of cases. And if you were throwing a football around in the backyard or what whatever at home, you know, you were as a kid, you were probably you know recreating a John Ward call of of you know scoring your your own touchdown or whatever in your mind. Like that's. That's what he was to. And to then test. you were doing a natural gas commercial. Yeah, exactly. Natural <laughs> gas. After the, after the touchdown, you were doing the commercial. Too. That's right. So, so he, so much of it was just that you know he he represented the sport and 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 kind of carried on the brand in a way that that not many announcers did and and just really um, what was yeah was that conduit to Tennessee football and made it feel even bigger than it was in a way and that and I think you. It just—it's so hard to find that these days. But for for the radio announcers that like John Ward that that have that special, that special something they bring to to the broadcast, it it, it makes them unforgettable and irreplaceable. And and their calls were, uh, you know, his calls were just a, a pleasure to listen to for anybody who got to hear him. Random side note: I didn't realize until last night that Pandemonium Reigns he used in the '82 Alabama game. Yeah. When they took down the goalposts in the north end zone. And then it was was Fun. that after the ninety eight Florida 98 game he Florida. used it again when they're taking down the goalposts in the south. Mm-hmm. So I didn't realize that. Yeah, and, and that there's a couple things from this, and, and in just a minute we're going to play uh, some the conversation that I and some others had with Bob Kessling on on Thursday morning talking about John Ward. But uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention a couple things from longtime Tennessee Sports Information Director, uh, the retired, the the one and only Harris T. Bud Ford, and uh, he you know knew John about as well as anybody and. I was talking to him this morning, too, and he said a couple things. He said his favorite call from John Ward ever was the 85 uh, Sugar Bowl, Jeff Powell's run, uh, because he said that was at a time when Tennessee really was about to break through back to the national elite, back into the – and he said that moment. He said John, just his call on all that was just kind of like, you know, without saying it, it was saying Tennessee's back, this is Tennessee again. 
here comes some good years. He said that that was that was his favorite call probably of all time. And he also said one thing other other people said, which was that John Ward's attention to detail was was unmatched. How much work he always put in. He said the only person who ever got to a stadium before John Ward was Larry Munson, and because those two like to be in a competition with each other of who could get to the stadium before the other one. And he said there was a couple times, I think the last year that, that John was covering or, or did Tennessee games, 98, they go down to Georgia, and he said, you know, I'm going to beat Munson to the press box this time. And got to a game something stupid like five hours early or something like that, and he saw Munson sitting down in his seat like, got you again, and he got like genuinely upset about that. <laughs> but uh, – and the the one other thing I'll say is that uh, just the, the kind of person he was and – him convincing some police officers in Mississippi to fake like arrest Bud Ford for stealing hotel sheets one time. <laughs> uh, some of those good old fashioned stories about how f- funny of a guy he was. Uh, and one other thing I'll say, the, the last thing that, that Bud said that really stood out to me was that in, I believe it was 1988, uh, Tennessee started, I think, 0-5, 0-6, uh, was playing Memphis in a game it just absolutely needed to win. Uh, and, and things were not going well at that time. But he said John Moore was one of the few people who could tell people how tough times were, but that, that better times were coming. And that he, it's like he got people to hang in there in a way that announcers just wouldn't have the pull to do in this era. No one person would have that power. But he, he, he called it what it was. It wasn't very good, but he said, guys, it, it, it's coming. It's coming. And then Tennessee beat Memphis that day and won its last, I believe, five games of 88 that season and then won the SEC championship each of the next two seasons. So he said if, if John Ward hadn't kept people on on the rails basically during that time, that he doesn't know that things would have turned around as quickly as they did, but that he, he really genuinely in his heart believes that John Ward telling people, relax, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get better. It, it, this team is young. This team is going to be good. Better times are coming. And then he said that this day and age, it, was just, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't reach that point because it would just go crazy before that ever happened. Uh, a couple more things that stood out to me. Uh, I read a, a, a nice tribute from uh, Every Day Should Be Saturday that Grant posted on our, our message board, and um, I, I thought one thing he pointed out that, that probably hasn't been discussed enough is the, the way John Ward would set the scene, especially before a big game. He had a way of, of kind of building the hype before kickoff, before the team would run through the tee, um, that, that really it was, it was like a well-done TV intro to a big game in just his words. And it was really, really incredible sometimes the, the way he could set the scene and, and, and get fans excited for a game like that. And that's, that goes back to part of you know, not relying on TV back in those days and, and being able to, to describe things so well and, and just his use of the language. Also, I, I, I thought just the way he um, – some of the, the, the years that he um, you know, w- was involved in, he – he he got to be associated with some some memorable players, and I, I thought some of his his best his best calls maybe weren't even from that era. But you know, let, let's face it, Peyton Manning and guys like that, the some of his calls that are associated with them, it you know, it's part of why he's going to be remembered the way the way he already is. Uh, you know, that some of Peyton Manning's most memorable plays. You know, the first play against Alabama in 1995, his his final home game in, in 1997 against Vanderbilt, a, a bootleg touchdown he scored. You know, plays like that. Uh, they're they're going to be remembered even more, and they were kind of immortalized because of the calls that that he had on on those plays, and that's 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 quite a compliment. I also remember the 1998 season 
it kind of added to the spectacle that that season turned out to be that it was John Ward's final season. The kickoff call-in show turned And Bill Anderson. We really and Bill Anderson, too. Absolutely. Uh, they were together for all 31 years that John Ward did football. But that year turned into a, even more of a spectacle because the kickoff call-in show before games was a big deal. People were lining up even on the road. They had some, uh, they had some like, kind of away kickoff call-in show party gatherings uh, at, at, at road venues and at Centennial Park in Nashville before the Vanderbilt game that year. You know, thousands of people showed up there when Tennessee basically took over that stadium um, to, to kind of celebrate John Ward's final regular season game. So that it, it, he got to go out on, on a great note. It's, you know, at the time, I'm sure people wish he would have continued calling games for another 10 years, like you said, he probably could have. But, um, but yeah, he, so much of the, the, the timing of the way things worked out for him was, was perfect. But, um, you know, those, those are some of the, the memories I have of him just because I, I, I kind of coincide with his final seven or seven or eight years of, of calling games, and and those turned out to be some of his best with Heath Schuler and Peyton Manning in a national championship run. And even basketball, Ernie and Bernie, Allen Houston, oh, yeah. all those. I mean, the the, the People great that, the great players of the last half century of Tennessee basketball. A lot of them got their name called by John Ward. Yep. And uh, what you're, what you're talking about building up games. If you can go back and and find that '98 Arkansas pregame where yeah. Arkansas is undefeated, Tennessee's undefeated. It's November. Uh, at Neyland Stadium, it's a nasty, rainy night. Uh, his his lead up before they run out of the tee is basically saying everything comes down to this football game. Everything that either team wants to do comes down to the next, you know, whatever three hours. Uh, but, but yeah, Bill Anderson. Uh, I mean, he couldn't have been paired with a more perfect uh, yeah. broadcast partner. And if you can go back on YouTube and find the tapes where John Ward's talking about how that partnership came to exist, basically they were looking for a color guy, and uh, John Ward thought whoever his boss was at the time, the administrators were going to pick a color guy, and they thought John was going to pick a color guy, and neither of them really picked a color guy. <laughs> and he bas- they basically said, well, what about Bill Anderson? He said, I'm okay with that. So they went with Bill. <laughs> and what, and what <laughs> a hey, low-key... What, what, what do you think about Bill? Yeah, and, as, right. and as efficient <laughs> and as a master of the English language that John Ward was, and so energetic and, and everything, uh, Bill Anderson was the total country boy, yes. played football at Tennessee, played Super Bowls, played in the NFL. Uh, and, and kind of just, I mean, was laughing uh, when big plays yeah. happened or celebrating or whatever while, while John was, well, would keep calling the play. So that, that's, that's something that, I guess, uh, is, is kind of going to get glossed over here yeah. when everybody's paying tribute to John. It's just how perfect of a pair that was and how randomly it came together. It was so low-key. Uh, that, that really was the f- kind of a fun part of the broadcast was Bill Anderson wouldn't always say a whole lot uh, compared to a lot of color guys that you hear today, but... Uh, he was just making noises. Yeah, a lot of times. And you knew it, it what reminded, he was. It reminded me a lot of the. Uh, I'm a Cubs fan, but but when you had you know, Ron Santo doing mm-hmm. the color analysis there, because you had Pat Hughes, one of the best voices in all sports, calling the games and being so professional and straight laced, and then you had Ron Santo just being insane. <laughs> you know, anytime something, he'd be like, "This guy, this freaking guy," when a guy would strike out, or you know, just so passionate. And, and Bill Anderson. To, to some degree, was kind of like that. And and it made him great as a, as a, as a duo. I, I'm glad you, you mentioned some of the laughing, Grant, because that reminded me. One of the things that always stood out to me about listening to, to a John Ward call a, of a game was the amount of humor you would find in some of the ways he would call things. He, you know, you traveled, sir, things like yeah, that. You, you traveled, know, sir. Th- that he just... You don't think you traveled, but you traveled, sir. Yes. And just so, so some of his way of delivering things, and it was so off the cuff, uh, it, it seemed... It seemed rehearsed almost as how, how smooth it was, but it was 
it, it was it seemed spontaneous and and uh, and humorous a lot of times. So he he had a it, such a dramatic way of calling certain plays that some of those lower key moments were 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 very funny the way they were presented. We'll go ahead right now and and we'll we'll go right into to a guy who you know we we know John Ward's stories. We all got to speak with John Ward. We all got to know him just a little bit. Uh, but we're going to hear right now from someone who who knew him very well, someone who used to serve as a spotter for him during games, uh, and then uh, years later was picked to be the one with the impossible job of trying to replace him. You know, trying to it's like trying to replace Pat Summit, Bear Bryant, Adolph Rupp. You know, just just an impossible. The the poor guy who takes over for Saban in Alabama. J- j- just that's what it was like trying to replace. John Ward, and of course, we're speaking about current voice of the Vols, Bob Kessling, who's who took over in 1999 from from John Ward. Almost and 20 years, yeah, crazy. It's, been, it's, it's crazy to think it's been that long, you know. It, it's, uh, but it has. And here, when we come back from this, I'll I'll tell one more quick John Ward story, and then we'll move on to talk about some other things. But here is current voice of the Vols, Bob Kessling, speaking of uh, former voice of the Vols, the late great John Ward. What's the biggest thing you think you learned? I, being prepared, and I think being the fact that you're not the show, the, the, the game is the show, and it's not about you, it's about getting it right. You know, one thing John did, uh, when all the games started to go on television, John would not allow us, this is when I was spotting for him, would not allow us to turn on the TVs in the booth. Because he said, we're radio guys. Our job is to get it right the first time. And he said, if I don't want you watching TV, I want you concentrating on the game. And so that put a lot more pressure on you because you didn't have a, you, you, you know, you, you couldn't make a mistake. You had, to, you had to get it right. And that just, that was his philosophy. You just needed to get it right. Did he do that through the end of his career? I, you know, I don't, I, the last time I spotted for him was in 92. That's yeah. when I left to go to Jefferson yeah. Pilot. But uh, up until that time, you, there were no TVs in the booth. It was all concentrate, and you know I need you. I need you to, to concentrate on the game. So. You mentioned he could be hard on you guys. What was it like? Like if you got something wrong, how would he react? Well, most time he would allow you to, to get it wrong once, and if you and he hated careless mistakes. I mean, if you made mistakes because you weren't prepared or you just weren't paying attention, you, there weren't many chances he would let you do it a second time. He would also write out about a three-page critique, type it out, and we would get it every, we'd come by the office, his office, on Monday morning, and he'd have a, he'd have a three-page critique of the broadcast, and he would go through all of it. And, uh, and you know, the, the, the person he was hardest on was himself. And he would say, well, I should have done this better, I didn't do this, but then he'd also go, Kessling, you need to pay attention to this, or you need to, and, and he'd go right from the engineer all right down the guy that cleaned the booth. I mean, he was he went right down the list, and I still got some of those. And I go back and look at him every once in a while and just think, you know, it, it was it, he kept you on your toes. I mean, he made sure that you were thinking about what you were doing and you weren't daydreaming. And if you did, then you didn't come back. To people who might live outside the southeast, outside of the CC country, might not be as familiar with him. Just what did he mean to the people just within this state? How important a figure was he? Well, I think he's one of the, he might be the greatest ambassador that Tennessee's ever had because he was the guy that you were, you know, John understood too that especially radio broadcasting, it's a one-on-one deal. You know, although you're broadcasting to 
millions of people, perhaps. It's the guy in the car or it's the guy sitting at home that he's trying to connect with. It's that one-on-one relationship. And John understood that. And, uh, you know, it was a different time because when John started, again, there, were, there was no television. So it was just John. And I think that bond that John developed with the, the listeners and the Tennessee fans in those early days, and then he did such a great job of, of, of improving that bond. Uh, and, and, of course, he was such a talented announcer. I, I just think it was, it's, it's been a special relationship that still exists today. I mean, it's a lot of people's childhood. They, were, they, were, they marked their childhood by games Tennessee won and John Ward calls. Beyond just his longevity, is there a reason you think he resonated so well with this fan base? Well, I think because he was good. You know, I think that he was, uh, he was one of those special announcers that only come along every once in a while. And, um, uh, you know, you, you, you talk about he had a flair that a lot of guys don't have. And, I, and he didn't fake it in one phone. He had that flair for the dramatic that, you know, on the field goal calls, you know, did he make it? He made it. You know, those, that was him. I mean, but they just set those things up. He did the same thing in basketball. You know, he would go, you know, the crowd will tell you if you made the free throw and all those type of things. I mean, he just, he just had a way of setting things up. And, uh, and it wasn't, you know, wasn't phony and it wasn't over the top, but I think that's what people appreciate about it. Bob, how big were his shoes to fill? Well, yeah, I mean, I had more people tell me not to take the job than to take it because of the fact that you don't want to be the next guy, you want to be the guy after him. But uh, I learned under John, I trained under John, you know, I played here at Tennessee briefly. I wasn't very good, but I did play as a freshman football. And I graduated from here, and it was my school, and my family lives here. And I, I, I just thought that, the, and A, the job only comes open about every three decades, so you, if you get offered it, you might want to take a look at it. But I was honored when they asked me, and I was thrilled. And, you know, I never talked to John once about it, and he never offered any advice, and he never told me yay or nay. He, and, you know, the other thing about it that made the transition easy for me was the fact that he stayed out of the spotlight. You know, you never saw him, and he never said anything, and he, you know, he never critiqued me or praised me or did anything, and and I really appreciated him for that. Uh, about five years ago, we started the week or so before the first game. Tim Priest and I started the tradition of taking John and Bill and all our wives would go out for dinner, and we go to the Foothills Milling Company out in Maryville, and they'd have a little room for us. And we'd sit out there, and the, the looks from people when they would walk by and see John and Bill and Tim and I sitting there were, were priceless. But we would start telling the old stories, and we'd start talking about the old games and what happened. And not so much what happened in the game, but what happened on the road trips and, you know, with, you know being late or whatever. And, and we just had such a good time. And I cherish those moments of just being with him and being able to go back and reflect on uh, how he got started and, and all of that. So um, he, w- he was just an impactful guy in my life. I mean, I wouldn't be here sitting here. I wouldn't have done a lot of the things I've done in broadcasting if it wasn't for his mentoring and kind of pushing me and, and, and showing me how to do this. Were you kind of intimidated when you first, that first game you did when you were on the broadcast team? Because you did that for years. Yeah, I wasn't intimidated. I was scared to death. You know? <laughs> I remember 
I remember the first game I was getting ready to do and my office was in Stokely and I was walking over to Neyland Stadium and I'm thinking, what have I gotten myself into? I mean, this is, you know, I had a good job at Channel 10 and I was doing Jefferson Pilot SEC football and I'm thinking, why did I want to jump into this? But, you know, again, it's your school and it's a great opportunity and they ask you to do it. And uh, so I'm walking from my office over to Neyland Stadium to do my first game and I'm going down Peyton Manning Pass and there's a guy and sitting in the back of an ice truck. You know, he's coming around, heading to the stadium, and he looks over at me and he yells out. He said, "Hey, Bob, good luck tonight. Don't embarrass us." <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, that was kind of the shot in the kidneys. Uh, I needed. You know, another thing uh, I remember: the first game, it was Wyoming, and uh, we were honoring. It was the 50th anniversary of the Vol Network, and we were honoring the past announcers. And that night, we were going to honor George Mooney. And so George, who hadn't been around, I guess, uh, since 67 when he called his last game, and then John took over in 68 doing football, and George was down in, in the, the British uh, West Indies or someplace in, on his island down there, and he flies back up here, and he's sitting uh, doing the kickoff call-in show with us. And uh, so I said, George, uh, we had seats in the stands, and they were going to honor him at halftime, and I said, George, would you like to sit in the booth with us, you know, tonight? And Tim and I would be on, Priest and I would be honored if you sit in the booth with us. He said, oh, I'd love to do that. So Tim and George and I, after the kickoff call-in show, we're making our way up to the, to the press box. And George put his arm around me as we're walking up there, and he said, Rookie, just remember, 31 years ago, they said there'd never be another George Mooney. Go up and do the best job you can. And that kind of that kind of uh, uh, broke the ice a little bit. And uh, and John, you know, John always told me, John called John called himself warped, and he called me Keesling all the time. He's like Keesling, warped here. And and then he goes. Uh, so when I took the job at Jefferson Pilot in '92, and I had to leave the, the network and leave spotting for him, he uh, said, "Now listen, Keesling said." You don't need to be doing all that hokey, goofy, goofball stuff I do when I'm doing the broadcast. We don't need another John Ward. We need a new Bob Kessler. And that stuck with me, too. I mean, he's, you know, don't copy what he did. Try and go out and do your own thing. And, and, and that really helped me, too. Bob, do you think for, for all, you know, so John's become over the years so synonymous with, with football and obviously with 100 plus thousand in there that yeah. speaks for itself but his performance in basketball is that something that you think is you know it was almost just as impressive I mean the way that he his experience there and just the way he called games there was so well, you got to remember too back when John started doing basketball there were only a handful of stations on the basketball network and so with John's marketing ability, what John did is he said, okay, if you want to do, if you want UT football, you got to take basketball too. And a lot of people don't give him credit for that. I mean, he really grew the basketball network and basically did it station by station. And so he's, and then of course Mears took off with the program in the 67 season, you know, they go to the NCAA tournament for the first time. That's really ignited things. But, uh, you know, John and Bob Woodruff and uh, Bill Petty and a bunch of guys went across the state and station by station said, if you want football, you got to carry basketball, too. So John is the guy that grew the basketball network, and, and he's the guy that really started Big Orange Country and all of that. So, yeah, he had a big impact in basketball. And I think he loved basketball more than he loved football. He might not admit that, and I don't think he ever did publicly, but I think privately 
you know, he, he loved working with DeVoe. He loved working with Kevin O'Neill. He just uh, he, he just really in, enjoyed all of that, those, those coaches. That was current voice of the Vols, Bob Kessling, speaking of former voice of the Vols, the, the late, great John Ward. And, and I, I promised one more story about John Ward quickly before we move on to talk about some other things uh, before we get out of here. A lot of people, as I've said earlier, a lot of people always think of football when they think of John Ward because Tennessee, you think football. Um, but John Ward always arguably cared more about and was more passionate about and knew more about basketball. And within the basketball community itself, uh, you know, that's why he and Kay Wood at Kentucky were such, were such good friends because they were the guys who really wanted, who really, in the league, who really preferred basketball, who really loved basketball. There weren't many of them. And uh, when you think about Tennessee basketball and the rebirth of the program, a lot of people think about Ray Mears, and, not, and understandably so, because he's a guy who kind of took Tennessee, you know, to that next level, got things going, and, and then with a couple dips in between, Tennessee's become one of the better, you know, one of the sneaky good basketball programs uh, really across the country. And one of the reasons for that is John Ward, and not just because of how well he called games. Back when, you know, you think of it now, it seems understood that if a radio station is going to carry a school's football games, they're also going to have to cover its basketball games. And it may be on the same station or it may be on, you know, a, a different AM affiliate or someone in that company. But basically you're going to have, you know, football and basketball games from a school usually on the same station. That, that did not used to really be a thing. And the reason a lot of that changed in Tennessee was because of John Ward because he went to the individual station owners across the state and he kind of surprised them and took them aback by saying, if you want Tennessee football games, guess what? You're also doing Tennessee basketball games. And because he was John Ward, people would, would listen to him and would do that. And the reason why Tennessee basketball was able to get a stronger foothold in the state was because of John Ward, because that's how much he cared about, the school, how much he cared about the school's basketball program. He also once interviewed when Tennessee started swimming and diving program. He, the first coach Tennessee hired, John Ward, not really the AD at the time, interviewed that coach because he was John Ward and because he filled so many different hats and did so many different things. That's how important he was. You know, it's just unheard of when you think of something like that. Uh, but that's kind of the guy who John Ward was. So certainly we could talk about him all day and we still wouldn't do him justice. Uh, but the man is a legend for a reason. Rest in peace, sir. You have earned you have earned your ticket to the next life. And I hope it's I hope it's a good one. So that's uh, God, we could talk about that forever, couldn't we? Oh, yeah, I mean, we, we really could. But, Absolutely. But in the, in the interest of time. Uh, we'll move on to a couple of other things, kind of an awkward transition here, but we will try to make it work anyway. Do we have an awkward transition sound? Uh, just Ryan <laughs> in general. <laughs> I like that. We'll just go Ryan, and that's a good transition. Basically, guys, the, there were some other things to mention with Tennessee in the past couple weeks that I've been gone. I guess we'll, we'll start with a couple of things. As we know, it's preseason predictions time for a lot of people. They try to get the – you know, it's, it's always – I remember being a kid before the websites, you would say, who, okay, who's going to get out first? going to be Athlon, going to be Lindy's. Every time you go to the store, you would look to see, you know, or, or feel still, like which one came out first? Because you had to buy it whenever it came out, every year. So for like this time, starting now, 
you go to the grocery store, you go to the gas station, you look and see if they're in yet. And that era has kind of sadly gone away, you know, uh, pour one out for the good old days. But these, these companies, they still do these things. And Athlon has come out with its preseason predictions, ranking college football teams, what, the, the Division One FBS, the uh, artist formerly known as Division One A. Uh, it is – they rank, what, 1 through 130? Is that one, how many there are now? 1 to 130, I believe. 1 yeah. to 130, because you never know if they're transitioning up. Do they count in that? Whatever, yada, yada. Point being, uh, Tennessee was slotted in the 50s in this. And, and they're not alone. Arkansas, 59. Ole Miss, 58. Uh, let's see, Army 57, I think Tennessee's 56. Yeah, Tennessee 56. You don't want to be listed just one above Army. Even when Army's better than Army normally is. And one just... behind Kentucky, 55, so that's a tough spot to be in. Oof. Well, if you're going on most recent results, I mean, They, what, they what didn't else? win an SEC game last year. I mean, what do you do? I mean, at some point you could say, wow, is Tennessee being given a little bit of credit there? <laughs> because the league is, uh, you don't win an SEC game. It's not like the SEC's going to stop and let you catch up. Baylor, Houston, Maryland, UCLA, also in the 50s. So not some good company to keep. No, but, I mean, if you see a a former power like UCLA in there, too, it shows you how cyclical uh, this game can be. And remember when UCLA had had Mora and it was like the next big thing and they were going to overtake USC? And it's funny how things change, isn't it? But Tennessee ranked in the 50s, guys. Is that that fair? Is that unfair? Is that what, what, what do we think of that? It's fair. It's middle of the road. Uh, you're starting over again for the how many time in the last decade. Uh, these things take time. Obviously, there's attrition when uh, coaching turnover happens. Rosters get depleted, uh, and you're building back from you're you know you're going back to square one and, and starting the building process all over again. So, uh, they this Pruitt and his staff have done a good job, like we've talked about in the past, adding pieces to try to help turn this roster over as quickly as he can. Uh, go into the tra- grad transfer market to do that if he has to. Uh, but still, you don't know what you're going to get till you, you you get out there and see it. And when you go 4-8 and eight last year and 0-8 in the SEC, worst, worst records uh, in program history, uh, there's not going to be much expected of you uh, the following year. So it's, it's probably fair because nobody really knows. Jeremy Pruitt is a head coach. He's never been a head coach. He's, and you don't know what you're getting out of this roster. Yeah, and, and – this is the, I mean, th- this is the limitation, I guess, of of preseason predictions. How, you know, how many years running was it that at SEC Media Days we never picked the SEC champion right? Like Nick Saban poked fun yeah. at the media just a year or two ago about that. I mean, it's so hard because all you really can go by is what you saw last year, and and we don't know what to expect from this team. It's a first time head coach, and it's a let's face it, it's a vastly different looking roster. Uh, in a lot of ways, this is a really tough tough season to project because Tennessee kind of quietly is is almost overhauled its entire offense in a way depending on how this quarterback battle plays out you could be looking at an offense with the new quarterback Keller Christ if he were, were to win the starting job um, you, you brought in a graduate transfer running back Madre London that's probably going to play you might even have a freshman uh, Jeremy Banks who gets some some work in the backfield receiver might look fairly similar you might get J- Jawan Jennings back out there this year that 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 looks even a little different from last year. And at tight end, you might be starting a junior college guy in Dominic Wood Anderson, and you just added a graduate transfer on the offensive line, Brandon Kennedy, who who potentially changes the look of your interior line. So all that taken as a whole, you know, I, how much better does that make Tennessee make? I don't know, but it makes them an unknown. And, and I think just based on what they have coming back, what what we know they lost from last year, where and where they were last year, let's face it, they were 4-8 and eight for the first time 
uh, ever losing eight games in the regular season, uh, going winless in the SEC. There, there's no reason really to justify putting Tennessee in any higher than that. So I think it's fair, but at the same time, I think you could put Tennessee probably anywhere between about 40 and 75 and be somewhat justified because the, the, the range of outcomes for this team seems pretty wide when you look at how much is different about this team from last year. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think that, I mean, one of the many reasons why th- this team is ranked in the 50s is because there's one guy getting some preseason kind of all-conference hype, all-America-type hype, and – and that's Trey Smith, the Tennessee offensive lineman, uh, the rising sophomore. Everyone knows how talented and big and strong and ridiculously good and gifted that young man is. Um, and they're still saying the right things about him, you know, being a guy who can come back and, and play football after his kind of mysterious and sudden uh, health situation that's not been specified publicly. Uh, but Pruitt said in the past week, even he went down down to uh, uh, WJOX, the radio station in Alabama earlier in the week and told them that he he felt pretty good about it you know be happy to have him back this season is what he said but then Tennessee of course comes comes back and says no just to clarify he's still not been cleared yet so they're basically just still expressing optimism at least publicly about the situation so are we aware uh, of any new developments there or just Pruitt going back on the radio and saying the same thing yeah, I, I think saying a lot of the same things that he said on the on the Big Orange Caravan at those stops. You know, he had similar comments in Atlanta at one of the final stops that, you know, caused some people that were there to say, hey, is Trey Smith finally cleared? You know, he certainly made it sound like it, and it was, it was a very similar comment to, to where he's just basically saying he's working out, he's doing everything that he can do right now, but it wasn't an indication that he's been fully cleared and given the, the, the 100% good-to-go sign uh, for, for this season. So... We'll see, but all signs certainly are pointing to continued optimism about his uh, possible availability, and, and we'll see how that goes over the next several weeks. And it's an answer nobody wants to hear, but you're not going to know until he's on the field. No. You're, I mean, coaches yeah. are going to say whatever Especially they, in this area. Coaches are going to say whatever they feel like saying to, to fill the space and, and to just have a quote out there, kind of the vague non-update update, uh, but you're not going to know until he's on the field. When he's on the field, uh, he'll be ready to go. Who knows when that's going to be. Speaking of uh, offensive line, though, there is one name that Tennessee now can officially announce that it does have, I suppose, and, and that is former Alabama offensive lineman Brandon Kennedy, a guy who, you know, let's be honest, just because you weren't good enough to start at Alabama uh, does not mean you're not good enough to start at Tennessee right now. Uh, this is a guy who uh, was a good prospect coming out of high school, a guy who obviously Jeremy Pruitt is comfortable with, knows. Uh, his defense has gone against this kid every, every day in practice for a couple years now, and this is a guy who – I think we'd all be surprised if he didn't step in and help Tennessee, right? I mean, this I don't I'm not going to walk in and say I guarantee he's a walk-in starter. I'm not going to guarantee that. But I I don't see any way that if, if this kid stays healthy, I don't see any way he's not helping the team. Yeah, th- this this will be a um pretty close to a plug and play situation, I think. I, I I think it's hard to envision uh, you know, Tennessee getting a guy like this with this level of experience in a in a program that that Jeremy Pruitt's obviously plenty familiar with him. Brian Niedermeyer's familiar with him. Uh, to to have multiple guys on staff who know what he can do from at least going against him in practice, even though he doesn't have much true game experience when you look at it. Um, just to to add a guy like that at this point, knowing where that offensive line has been and where it is, I, I it's hard for me to ima- imagine that he's not in the starting lineup. Um, probably for game one. And I think he probably steps in at center and 
makes your situation at guard look a lot better because now you can just squeeze all those guys that were between center and guard into the guard positions essentially and let them compete there. So it's uh, and it even gives you some options with Trey Smith, assuming he's back. This opens up the door for him to to maybe pay, play tackle if you if you have enough options at guard. If you think Trey Smith can play can play right tackle, for instance, um, you know that gives you a lot more options than than just someone like Marcus Tatum or or, or Jameer Johnson. Uh, you know, being a junior college guy, it w- won't be needed right away. So th- this this changes the, the look of the entire offensive line, and, and yeah, it's hard. And not it also to, makes if Chance Hall, if there's any more issues yeah. there, it makes you feel better about that. Sure, yeah, Chance Hall is a huge variable. So yeah, you got you got a lot of moving pieces here, and it's going to make the offensive line competition fascinating. But assuming Brandon Kennedy doesn't disappoint somehow when he when he gets to officially gets to work at Tennessee, and I know he's already on campus and, and getting ready to start classes, but. You know, assuming he doesn't disappoint, it's hard not to see him being a starter in the lineup. And, and regardless of, of how much he produces, it's not a very big gamble because you're only tying up a scholarship for at most two years. Uh, and you're taking a body away from Alabama, even if it's a depth option. Uh, and, you're ta- and you're taking somebody away from Auburn because he considered Auburn just like he considered Tennessee. And, and mm-hmm. this is an Alabama kid that you're pulling out of the state uh, and bringing into your program. So regardless of how much he – he produces at Tennessee if he's a starter from day one or, or whatever. Uh, it's not a huge gamble, and you're you're weakening opponents a little bit at least. Well, yeah, I, I want to remind people the the caliber of player that occasionally does not start for a long time at Alabama. Uh, remember Mac Wilson? <laughs> this guy is like a preseason All American, basically, just a guy who's like, yeah, future stud. There, and, and he was maybe the best player on the field in the title game. Maybe he might have been. He, he he basically, I think, had a better title game performance than Rollo McLean had or whatever a few years ago. I, I think he was he was that good uh, in that game. And, uh, you know, he didn't start until the very, very end of the season. You know, basically, when you know, he, he just – he was a step-in guy in play. And, and I'm not saying that Brandon Kennedy is going to be exactly like that, but, but Alabama has been so loaded for the past several years – that they've got guys on their third team, legitimately guys who are on their third team, who would start at a majority of programs in college football. And, and I don't, I'm not trying to put them on some pedestal, but I think you need to understand that that's the level of talent in that program right now. And the reason Saban didn't want him to go to Tennessee is because he knows he can help Tennessee. Right. He knows he could he could do that. And, and the the last thing I'll mention about this, and I, I alluded to it a little bit earlier, and he was still meaningful depth for them yeah, too. Yeah, clearly. And the, the last thing I'll add is this: Jeremy Pruitt has seen this kid play God knows how many snaps the past, co- the past few years. You know, he, he's seen him in scrimmages. He's seen him in practice every day. His defense has gone against this kid every single day for the past, what, few years? Three years, I guess you could say. And now he has had a spring to look at his defense going against Tennessee's offense every day throughout the spring. And he said pretty quickly, this kid could help me a lot. And that, to me, is a pretty strong indicator because if the kid didn't work hard, Pruitt wouldn't bring him. I don't care how talented he is, Pruitt is not doing, dealing with that BS. He's just not doing it. Uh, you, you know that about that guy. He won't do it. And so for him to say, I want this guy, I think that says pretty clearly that this is a guy who can come in and help. I'd, I'd be shocked if he didn't help. And you're, and you're bringing somebody into your locker room that's been part of a winning culture for yeah. the last three years. I mean – and wants to have that culture that yeah, you Tennessee had there. Tennessee fans, I know how they hate Alabama, but, I mean, that's a winning culture. They, they breed winners. Oh, championship uh, culture, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and to bring that kind of veteran presence into your locker room, onto your roster, uh, nobody really knows where the leadership is on this roster. Trey Smith, uh, I don't 
I think they've talked about in the past. They need leaders to step up. Well, you're bringing in somebody that's that's been around a, a football program that knows how to win that maybe uh, that rubs off on some other people. And for that matter, it's a, it's a little bit of a variable now that, you know, just how do these, you know, I mentioned the, the turnover uh, on, on Tennessee's offense and, and really over the entire roster when you count this, you know, this freshman class, the grad transfers, the junior college transfers, chemistry will be interesting with this team, bringing in so many new faces. But uh, but that, that's a good point, Grant, that, you know, bringing in a potential leader like that, a veteran who's been around uh, SEC programs, knows another guy who knows what good looks like and can help Tennessee, um, you know, bridge that gap. Uh, and, and you made a good point, you know, talking about it's a it's a minimal risk for potentially two years of benefit. I mean, that that's a huge part of this to me. It's not a one-year fix. Uh, this is a guy who can help you this year and next year when you're presumably taking another step toward competing for, for a division championship maybe. Um, you know, he, he still will, will be around in all likelihood. And even more interesting, there's now the, with the new NCAA rule in regard to uh, getting a six-year of eligibility, he actually would have a, a real shot at getting a six-year of eligibility because he's, he's redshirted and then missed most of last season with an injury. That's now enough that if you want to pursue a six-year, that's even an option. So this is the guy who could be a two-year starter for Tennessee, and if he doesn't want to move on to the NFL by then, might even have a, a case for a six-year that could make him a three-year player at Tennessee. So this is all upside for the Vols. No reason not to take a chance on him and uh, and, and still likely a, a, a day-one starter if everything goes as expected. Last thing, last thing, excuse me, last thing we'll mention before we get on out of here. Works better microphones do when you turn them on. Uh, I will say this. Uh, I guess it's, it's sort of been confirmed before this, but in case there was any doubt, uh, it does seem Jonathan, like Jonathan Kongbo, is definitely going to, open preseason camp for Tennessee at least as an outside linebacker uh, and again if you're a defensive end or an outside linebacker in this 3-4 that's not necessarily a huge amount of difference you're still at the position he's going to play you're still um, going to be rushing the passer quite a lot you're just an edge guy they call these guys edge guys for a reason and uh, I'll be honest with you Pruitt wanting to do the move makes me feel a little better about it but I just like Combo more the more he puts his hand kind of in the ground and the closer he gets to the line of scrimmage. So, uh, But then again, his numbers against the run were not good last year, PFF yeah. grade. So so maybe this is just – maybe this is Pruitt saying, hey, this kid's going to give me more effort out here. This kid's going to want to play better out here. And it's just the best thing to do for this team for me to put him there. And, and Well, so two things on this. On one hand, it makes some sense because, like you said, his pro football focus grades suggest he's much better as a pass rusher than, than in stopping the run. Uh, in a, in a three-man front on defense, you need to be effective against the run. And not only that, but you've got to be a two-gap player. You've got to be able to, to tie up blockers, if at the very least, to, to help out your linebackers and allow those guys to roam freely. So if you didn't like what you saw from Kongbo in the spring and didn't think he was going to help you all that much there and you weren't convinced he was your best option to start there then then it's worth at least giving him a look at linebacker and and two we we know he has always been a little more dedicated to being kind of an edge pass rusher that's that's what he's always wanted to do giving him the chance to do that you know you can you can at least see the upside there and then on top of that you think linebacker you think you know you maybe you need a lighter player you need a guy who's not 275 280 pounds whatever Kongbo has been recently we don't have 
up to date weights on him or anybody else or any yeah anyone else on the roster or heights i think they're just they're just no longer giving us any of this at least they're giving us the numbers which michigan doesn't give like the actual jersey numbers for a while so so but but with kongbo uh what one interesting thing about this is in a three four system you can you can play with some heavier um jack or, or or uh Sam linebackers. You can use some heavier guys there on the edge than you might think. Uh, Alabama's played some 270 pound linebackers on the edge, so you can you can get by with that. It's essentially a pass rushing position. That's all it really is. He won't be he won't be in coverage at 270 pounds no. or anything like that. They're not going to do anything uh, where he can't get the job done. So it's worth a look at the very least. Me personally, I'm skeptical that it's going to work out and, and make him a much better player or much more effective. I'm, I'm very skeptical. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure it, it pans out, but I'm not sure, frankly, it was going to pan out at defensive end either. So I, I think it's worth a shot and uh, at the very least gives you another option to get after the quarterback, which, frankly, this team's got to find a way to do that. They, they've got enough enough major question marks in the secondary on the defensive line. We know they might not be good in a couple of those spots. If this team can't get after the quarterback pretty well, it's going to be a long day for their secondary against teams like West Virginia, Missouri, You've got to be able to provide some pressure, and if Kongbo can help, it's it's worth a shot. And anytime Pruitt is asked about this stuff, the switch from a four three to three four, or Kongbo uh, moving to outside linebacker, he really downplays it a ton. Yeah. So uh, here's the other side of that: Kongbo will have his hand on the ground when they go to yeah, four man fronts. And so that, that, that's kind of the point I'm getting. Yeah. At. It's it's not that big of a change. Yeah. It's it, it is it's a position change in title, but I mean you're rushing the passer. You're doing a lot of the same stuff that a defensive end's doing, and I and I think this does. Uh, this is probably a sign that Tennessee didn't obviously wasn't fully convinced that after seeing him in spring, he could he could be that defensive end when they need to go to three man fronts. And I, I think this is probably a sign that they're willing to go with some heavier guys up there. You're adding Emmett Gooden as a junior college transfer. He's he's a little over 300 pounds. You know, he could maybe play defensive end in a in a three man front, and also can help at, at nose tackle with Shy Tuttle. So. Uh, that you, you've got options like that. You've got Alexis Johnson. Does one of those guys now end up being your third starting defensive lineman alongside Kyle Phillips and Shai Tuttle? That that's going to be an interesting battle now if Kongbo really is out of the picture there. But I, I think it's it's maybe an indication they're just going to go with a a little bit heavier guy there and 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 try to um, try to tie up blockers with someone like that. So it, it makes a little sense to me when 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 you you aren't loaded up front, you know, go with go with your most experienced guys and, and make, the, make the defense work around them. So we'll see where they go on the defensive line, but something tells me they go with a, a little bit heavier lineup now. Yeah, I think the bottom line with Combo remains the same, which is that he has one more season to show whether he is the five-star prospect that Tennessee and everybody else thought he was coming out of JUCO, or is he the guy who got redshirted at Wyoming as a true freshman? Which guy? Not quite a five-star, by the way. but High, the, high, high four-star. Yeah, number one junior college player in the country. So there that's you still, go. still a guy enough. you expect to be very, very good. Yeah, a guy who, are you supposed to be the top JUCO player in the country, or are you the guy who redshirted at Wyoming? Which one of those two things are you? And, and maybe, more than likely, he's kind of somewhere in between those things, but that's basically the... That's basically the deal there. If he want, yeah, if he wants to get paid to play football, he's got to do it this year one way or the other. So if this helps him get closer to that and he can help Tennessee in the process, uh, it's, it's worth a shot. I think that's a good way to put it. And I think that's probably probably a good way to, way to end it. Guys, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Ramey and I have been talking about this for a while. We're going to have another basketball podcast for you as soon as possible. We're going to try our best to get that one to you because there's a lot of basketball news specifically that we needed to get to. So we'll bring that to you as quickly as we possibly can. What's a basketball? What is basketball? 
basketball. We'll try to get to that. Guys, any final thoughts? Nope. Nothing. We miss you, PB. Happy anniversary, Patrick and Miss Patrick Brown. There you go. Isn't it? Is it? Yeah, I guess you could call it that. That's our final thought. <laughs>